I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And, and we're, we're the, the sirens. sirens. Today we're talking about Some Like It Hot, a 1959 movie about two hard luck jazz musicians who witnessed the St. Valentine's Day massacre in the 1920s and then go into hiding as women in an all-female orchestra. They must navigate love and attraction. One lusts after the band's sultry singer, played by Marilyn Monroe, while the other is pursued by a wily old millionaire, all while dodging the mob. Hijinks <laughs> ensue. <laughs> Hi, so many hijinks yeah. in high heels. <laughs> yes. And this movie is on so many lists of like the best comedies of all time. Although I had never seen it before. Yeah, I had never seen it before either, so I'm glad we... I, I think that's a rarity for us to both have never seen a movie to for, and you know before watching it for this podcast, so... Uh, and we should add that this was a listener choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we had decided we wanted a non-depressing movie and... Any non-depressing <laughs> movie. <laughs> for our November pick, and um, this is what you guys chose. Did not disappoint. <laughs> so, this is since this this is such a famous movie. Um, some of this trivia might be known more widely, mm-hmm. but I, it was all new to me. Um, this was directed by Billy Wilder, and uh-huh. because it was a mob movie, he deliberately cast actors from 1930s, 1930s yes. gangster pictures to fill out the ranks of the uh, cops and robbers in the movie. He cast George Raft, who was from Scarface, as Spatz Columbo, the uh-huh. studio player Pat O'Brien as the chief lawman, and George E. Stone from Little Caesar as the Fink. Oh. Um, which, they looked familiar to me, but I could not have put my finger on mm-hmm. what I knew them from. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of interviews with the stars of this movie, so um, the trivia will be riddled with quotes. Um, Jack Lemmon said that he and Curtis were very cooperative about being put in makeup and high heels, but they put their feet down about their dresses. And he said, they wanted us to select off the rack stuff from the costume department. We said we wanted dresses done by Ori Kelly, who was doing Monroe's costumes and they got them. So they basically had the same, (laughs) this like fabulous designer doing their clothes for them to look like very frumpy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I had her, I know, I mean, we talked about Marilyn Monroe on other episodes and like, Mm -hmm. I knew a little bit about her having a reputation in this movie, (laughs) but, uh, Billy Wilder found working with her. He had also worked with her in the seven year itch. He found her difficult. Mm. Um, she would show up hours late for work claiming she lost her way to the studio and Wilder would have to run like huge amounts of takes just to get one line which also put a lot of pressure on the other actors because they had to get their lines perfect every time because they would always use the take when she got hers right um yes and i mean i take this with a little bit of a grain of salt but um he made disparaging remarks about her to the press and said the question is whether marilyn is a person at all or one of the greatest (gasps) dupont products ever invented (gasps) She has breasts like granite, she defies gravity, <gasps> and has a brain like Swiss cheese, full of holes. What? Can you believe what? that? No! <laughs> I know, I was like, okay, Billy Wilder. 
Step back. Yeah, I know. I was like, I've liked several of your movies, but I, I don't know anymore. So I looked up like about this movie in a bunch of different places, but it seems to have been corroborated in other places that she really struggled with her lines. Um, I read that it took 47 takes for her to get It's Me Sugar correct, instead oh saying God. either Sugar It's Me or It's Sugar Me. <laughs> and um, eventually Billy Wilder had the line written on a blackboard. And in another scene, uh, she rummages through drawers and says, where's the bourbon? And after uh-huh. 40 takes of her saying, where's the whiskey? Where's the bottle? Where's the bonbon? Um, Wilder pasted the correct line in one of the drawers and then she got confused about which drawer had the line in it so he had to paste it in every drawer every drawer oh my gosh and um, they took 59 takes for that wow and when she finally did say it she had her back to the camera so some people speculate that they just had it dubbed in the end oh jeez but I remember reading that when she was doing this movie, she had like ho- horrible um, bouts of nerves, and because mm-hmm. that seems crazy that you couldn't remember a line like "It's me, sugar," but maybe if you were like also having a nervous breakdown, yeah, <laughs> it could be a problem. So I don't know. I mean, it sounds like it would have been hard, but also Billy Wilder, you're kind of a jerk, and <laughs> maybe should have like figured like asked like what's going on with you or do you need help or something like yeah or like after the like the second time that you have to do 40 takes for someone maybe like (laughs) write it down somewhere and put it in every drawer like for the the third scene or whatever yeah don't like do it multiple times like (laughs) you're the director (laughs) it's your fault (laughs) Uh, and i also read that there are different scenes in the movie where the way her eyes are moving in the scene, you can tell that she's reading her lines off of a blackboard that someone's uh, holding up, which I didn't uh-huh. really notice. I didn't. But. Yeah, I didn't notice at all. Um, so that that's kind of a sad part. <laughs> uh, when yeah. Curtis and Lemon were happy with their makeup looks, Wilder sent them into the women's restroom to see if they could pass, and no one gave them a second glance, and that's how they knew that they had it right. <laughs> Although, I t- which is kind of wild because it's pretty obvious. That's what I think too. Like, if I saw them out in public, I would kind of do a double take. But who knows? It's um, that piece of trivia actually came from my friend um, Mitch, who is a also a friend of the podcast, and he sent me all this information about this movie, and I thought that was <laughs> so great. So I heard that before I watched it, and then I was like, "What? No, those are definitely <laughs> two dudes." But. <laughs> Those are men in dresses and wigs. (laughs) And you'll appreciate this one. When Tony Curtis played Junior, the fake shell oil heir, he was doing an Uh impression of Cary Grant. Cary Grant. (laughs) Did you? Okay, I wrote in my notes, he sounds just like Cary Grant before I read that. I wrote, Tony Curtis's millionaire voice is Cary Grant! Exclamation point. Which, like, (laughs) kind of makes sense. (laughs) Who wouldn't want to sound like Cary Grant? I know. You know, if you want to sound like a rich millionaire, sound like Cary Grant. Yeah. So that's what I I'm had. glad to know it was on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> um, apparently, Billy Wilder had always wanted to work with Cary Grant and never got to. So this was like as close as he got to working with him. <laughs> Sounds like he n- didn't deserve to work with no. <laughs> Cary uh, Grant. Yeah. Cary Grant's too much of a class act. <laughs> um, so who did you bio for this movie? Um, I bio... Speaking of Tony Curtis, Tony Curtis. So, yeah, I can tell you a little bit about him. 
And I think we we both said that we hadn't really seen him in very much, so I think we'll, we will both learn a lot about about him. Tony Curtis was born Bernard Schwartz in Manhattan on June 3rd, 1925. His parents were Hungarian Jewish immigrants from Czechoslovakia and Hungary. He spoke only Hungarian until the age of six. Um, his father was a tailor, and the family lived in the back of the shop. Um, his mother was uh, diagnosed later in his childhood with schizophrenia, and his brother Robert was institutionalized um, later in life with the same the same illness. Oh. When Tony, at the time Bernard, uh, was eight years old, he and his brother Julius were placed in an orphanage for a month because their parents couldn't afford to feed them. And then four years older, uh, four years later, excuse me, Julius was struck and killed by a truck. Oh my gosh. Um, Talk about trauma. Yeah. yeah, a lot of trauma. He sort of, maybe perhaps in response to that trauma, Bernard Schwartz joined a uh, neighborhood gang whose main crimes were apparently playing truant from school and just like minor theft from the local five and dime. Uh, when he was 12, uh, a neighbor sent him to Boy Scout camp, which helped to you know, clean up his act. And he uh, started, he ended up going on to high school, of course, and had his first small acting part in a school stage play. He enlisted in the Navy after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And then once he was discharged from the Navy, he attended the City College of New York on the GI Bill and then studied acting at the New School in Greenwich Village. And while he was still at college, he was discovered by Joyce Selznick. Yeah, having been discovered, he um, got a contract with Universal Pictures, uh, and that was when he changed his name to Anthony Curtis. He didn't want to be Bernard. No. <laughs> the first name comes from the novel Anthony Adverse, and Curtis is a form of a family named Kurtz um, from his mother's side of the family. Um, he His first... Um, uncredited screen role came in 1949. He played a rumba dancer in the movie Crisscross, and then he like he had a number of others like smaller roles. And in the next year or so, and got a lot of fan letters. And so Universal sort of gave in and said, "Okay, sure, you can have a starring role um, in The Prince Who Was a Thief in 1951, and, um, that was a box office hit, so he got, he was put in more movies, um, of various levels of success, um, like, sort of swashbuckling, westerns, crimes, movies, and other, like, B-movies, um, including the title role in the movie Houdini with his then-wife Janet Lee. Uh, he graduated to more prestigious projects um, with the support of Burt Lancaster, who was, and he and Michael Douglas were sort of champions for him throughout his career. And he gave an Oscar nominated performance in the movie The Defiant Ones in 1958, which might be a movie that we sometime do sometime for the podcast. He plays a bigoted white escaped convict that's chained to a black man played by Sidney Poitier. Uh, he worked consistently in the 1960s, including in Spartacus, The Outsider, Taurus Bulba, and The Great Race, and many other movies. He also appeared off and on on television, especially in the 1970s. Even when his, his acting career sort of tapered off, you know, towards the end of the 1970s, and throughout his life he had um, been an avid painter, 
and early in the 1980s, uh, painting became sort of a second career for him. He um, identified as a surrealist painting and thought that of Van Gogh, Matisse, Picasso, and Magritte as influences for his art, and apparently his work you know, got lots of, you know, like, sold for, like, $25,000. Whoa. He did have a problem with drinking and drug abuse throughout his adult life, but he sought treatment at the Betty Ford Clinic in um, the 1980s, and apparently that um, was a successful um, round of treatment. Uh, He was married six times, and his children include the actress Jamie Lee Curtis. um, And Oh, you didn't know that? No. (laughs) Yes, his daughter is Jamie Lee Curtis, um, from when he was married to Janet Lee. So I could see it now that if I picture their faces next to each other, that makes sense to me. But surprise, did not put that together. <laughs> In the nineties, um, so Tony Curtis and his daughter Jamie Lee Curtis took a renewed like genealogical interest in their family's um, Hungarian Jewish heritage, and they helped finance. Fin- financed the rebuilding of the Great Synagogue in um, Budapest. As a lifelong smoker, he apparently had a lot of lung issues, including uh, COPD. And in July 2010, he was hospitalized um, after suffering an asthma attack during a book signing engagement in Nevada. He lived for another two months and died at his home on September 29th, uh, 2010, of cardiac arrest. Wow, so he... That's Tony Curtis. (laughs) Yeah, he didn't die that long ago. Yeah. Um, Good good long life. I thought he was very handsome. Yes. And that was... And he was a very fine-looking woman, too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Either way. (laughs) I mean, when you see him in the opening scenes where they're, like, playing the music, I was sort of struck by his face. Yeah. Definitely the pretty boy of the two of them. Yes. (laughs) Because Jack is just so, like, goofy. (laughs) Yeah, it's very silly. Well, so we we talked about the fact that we hadn't seen it before. What what's mm-hmm. your um, broad strokes take on it? My broad strokes take on this movie is that as as I I I went into this movie sort of feeling slightly uncomfortable about the whole like men wearing women's clothes being sort of ridiculous um, and you know potentially a little bit anti-gay and having seen the whole movie and thought about it I think like in the end it is like really a movie that sort of like draws attention to like the different experiences of men and women men and women on a binary and and I think like it definitely accomplished the thing that we were hoping to accomplish in November which is to watch a movie that was like funny and fun and not serious yes Like, a bunch of people died, but it was not, like, a serious (laughs) murder, so. That that actually surprised me, like, how much gunning down of people there was in this movie. (laughs) Well, it was, like, comical gunning down, because they would, like, show the, like, machine guns going... And then they'd like like cut to the bodies, and there'd be like pinpricks of blood on them. Like they they would each have like gushing blood out of them. So I don't know what's <laughs> happening. <laughs> I what were your broad strokes? I agree with you that like in general, I'm not a huge fan of like men are dressed as women. Isn't this hilarious? Like like Tootsie and um, 
Mm-hmm. Um, like it, when we watched White Christmas, there was a scene yeah. like that and that. However, I thought there was a lot more to it in this movie than just like, look at that. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, I did think like or pretty early on in the movie, I, I wrote down like, I don't think this movie is meant for me. Like, I don't think I am the audience of this movie. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, it was very mm. male gazy the whole time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it like, so it felt like it wasn't for me and I don't mean to say that I didn't enjoy it I just didn't feel like I was the intended audience I enjoyed it a lot and like it was like a fun rollicking movie like there were things that annoyed me that were just very of the time but the comedy I thought was was pretty on through most of it and I like I definitely laughed a lot at different parts so there were I I don't know if this is what you're sort of referring to but uh, you know there are definitely there's definitely seemed to be an arc of you know, Jerry and Joe sort of realizing what women have to put up with with me- from men. Men realizing how hard it is to be a woman because men are pigs and awful. Um, which, like, y- I think I can speak for both of us to say that, like, that's not some that's not a lesson you and I needed to learn. Like, no. we have, <laughs> you know from personal experience. What? So. No. <laughs> so. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, like, that was the thing that, that I liked about I mean, the movie, like, in terms of, to the extent that there was a message, it was, like, all over the place. But I did like that it highlighted things that women have to deal with that men never think of. And it's sort of, especially for 1959, like, when I was doing some of the research about this, the word that kept coming up was subversive. And I totally Mm -hmm. see that, Mm -hmm. that, like, this was, like, a very conservative time. Yeah. Um, and this is a movie that got to be hugely popular in which, you know, there are some, like there's men dressing in women's clothes and there's some like gender swapping, like romance scenes and things like that, that, that you just wouldn't mm-hmm. probably see in that time mm-hmm. <laughs> at all. Oh, yeah. And then there's uh, Josephine kissing sugar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even though he like, we know he's a man. And identifies as a man and, like, is a man through and through. He just is wearing women's clothing clothing so that uh, the mob doesn't get him. And, like, nobody else in the band knew that that was a man. That was a yeah. woman kissing a woman. Yeah. So, I mean, I liked that about it, that it just kind of threw a lot of conventions out the window. Oh, and I did read that the, like, Catholic um, Association in the United <laughs> States ban this movie so like <laughs> why am i not surprised <laughs> <laughs> and like a lot of local governments and stuff censored it too so but yeah. like i did enjoy it and actually the parts that stuck out to me as like the most relatable and compelling were some of the scenes where it was just all the women together and the men got to see what it was like to sort of hang out as one of the girls and like the camaraderie mm-hmm. and all of that like, when they're on the train. Of course, the whole time they're just, you know, <laughs> like, ogling the girls and wanting to get with the girls and all of that. But, like, it also gave them insight into, like, oh, you know, they just met these women who joined the band. And, like, instantly they're part of the group. And they're all mm-hmm. having fun and, like, partying and sharing jokes. Like, the one-legged jockey joke, which I really wanted to hear the whole thing <laughs> of that. <laughs> like, the, you know, that... That yeah. all felt very real to me. Yeah. When they first 
you know, decide that they're going to join the group, they sort of, like, overdo it. They're like, oh, we're going to be ladies. And, you know, we went to, a, you know, the conservatory of Sheboygan. <laughs> um, and, and Sweet Sue was like, oh, we're going to have to tell the other girls that they can't swear so much because, like, they've sort of over, like, compensated for, you know, to swap gender roles and, um, you know, and to, you know, to be a woman and, like, you know, eventually... And not actually not too long later, we see those those scenes that you were talking about where the girls are just like rollicking and swearing and drinking, you know, and whatever. They're just like they're just girls, not you know they're not like frilly or foofy. Yeah, I like the way that Jack was as Daphne was his personality as a woman. I liked like he he yeah. was very outgoing and. Like, seemed, like, accessible and, like, bubbly, and <laughs> I liked just his whole persona a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I felt like, oh, I know women like that. Like, that's yeah. a lot of what made them seem more believable as women to me was not really the way they looked, but kind of the personalities that they took on. Yeah, totally. So, and it's funny, because we watched The Apartment, too, and he was also supposed to be humorous in that movie and I totally did not like him (laughs) even though that's like objectively a good movie I was like I don't find you funny like you're Mm -hmm. and in this movie I felt like he really lit up the screen yeah the two men sort of played off of each other better I think yeah um well what did you think of Marilyn Monroe I mean so Jen watched this with me and you know, it, there are a number of scenes where we kind of looked at each other and, she, and said, you know, she's just fantastic. And, you know, so it was interesting. I didn't know the the trivia, you know, about how, like, they had to do so many takes because, yeah, it sort of surprises me because, you know, we just thought she, you know, had just kind of, like, a really nuanced performance in this show that really was kind of, like, a typecast character for her, maybe, I haven't seen enough of her work, I think, to really know that. But, you know, kind of the, like, airheaded, you know, blonde, busty girl. But, you know, she somehow conveyed a little bit depth to her character that, like, you know, I could appreciate. There were a couple of times where she, like, was on screen with, you know, outfits on. And I was like, I don't know how they... How it's staying on. Yeah, I don't know how it's staying on. I don't know how this is allowed. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, there were a couple scenes when I was saying to Mike, like, is she wearing pasties? Is that even covering her? <laughs> like, what is happening? <laughs> what is she wearing? Yeah, I agree that that I was more impressed with her talent in this movie than in other places where I've seen her. And I think some of it was, she was sort of, like, bouncy or something. Mm-hmm. Like, she had a certain vibrancy to her, and and I don't necessarily mean this in a sexual way, but, like, her acting was very physical, too. Yeah. That's really her singing, right? I imagine, so I assumed so. I mean, I thought she was good in the scenes where she was performing, like, playing mm-hmm. the ukulele and stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, her character in this movie is very similar to the character she plays in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which mm-hmm. is, like kind of like a wifty blonde who is after a millionaire and yeah and doesn't really like think isn't thinking critically about like what that means (laughs) yeah and I really hated that that ending where 
she finds out that uh, Josephine was, like, tricking her the whole time, used her private conversation to create, like, a fake person, then get her to seduce him by, like, playing game, like, psychological games with her. And then in the end, yeah. she's like, oh, I don't care. Like, I'm still coming with you. <laughs> the end. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was the kind of thing where, like, to reconcile that or that ending, I kind of had to, like, build out some, like, extra backstory or whatever and or like project some like additional growth maybe on both Josephine and Sugar that like having had the experience of being a woman and like being pursued by men or being perceived as a woman I guess um and being pursued by men and like really having a an, more of an insider experience of like being around more women it seemed to me that like joe realized that he had done like all of the crap that sugar complained about other men doing like all the other saxophone players that she dated and you know who's who broke her heart he realized oh i've done those things and so like they're in the boat flying away and he's like not only am i a man but like I I am the exact man that you, like, you know, I have been that guy. And, like, almost in a, like, I have been that guy and I'm, like, I don't want to be that guy anymore. But you need to know that, like, that's who I am. You know, and so, like, I was hoping that she was, like, her, like, I don't care. is more like I, I realized that, like, I, you know, love you because of who you are, like, individually, not, like, my whole experience of men, but I, like, also, I recognize that I am, like, totally projecting (laughs) that growth onto them. Yeah, I was like, I did not get all of that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's what I hope, is that, like, from the experience of however many days that is, like, Joe realized that, like, he can't be that, he, he can't go back to being that asshole anymore, that he has to be a better person. Yeah, I think if this movie was made today, I would have liked to have seen some, like, sexual tension between them within their friendship where it's, mm-hmm. like, Josephine and Sugar. Yeah, yeah. And then it would yeah. have made more sense to me. <laughs> right, and it, like, because it, it almost seemed like it was a movie where, that was operating in a universe where, like, wasn't that, like queerness was bad it was just that like it doesn't exist yeah like so when they say say like girls can't be attracted to other girls like it's not like we can't do it because it's bad it's just that it's not possible which i like i felt uncomfortable about at first in watching this movie but by the end of it and like thinking about it afterwards i was like well it was 1959 <laughs> yeah <laughs> i really couldn't it was like sort of simplifies everything to like have it be this very binary men like women yeah. women like men there's no these men are wearing dresses the audience knows that they are men wearing dresses there's no we're not like getting into the like you know there's no <laughs> transgender people do not exist yeah even though obviously they existed at, in the 1950s they're just like in the universe of this movie they didn't exist that's i thought one of the most interesting parts of the plot was that jack as Daphne ended up actually liking Mr. Sterling. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it was interesting to me, too, because the storylines are both kind of parallel in that, um, well, Mr. Sterling, who I 
find very creepy just like that actor I find creepy (laughs) but like in the opening scene he basically like assaults her in the elevator elevator yeah and then she ends up going or I'm saying she (laughs) Daphne ends up going out with him anyway like for purposes of just like helping his friend but likes him then on the date and I was like it's very it's similar in a lot of ways to like Sugar finding out that <laughs> there's so many names of people in this movie. Um, Junior <laughs> slash Josephine <laughs> also slash tricked Joe. her, and she's just yeah. like, "Oh, I'm okay with it because I still like you." And it it made me think a lot about how women were sort of socialized mm-hmm. to put up with that kind of crap. Yeah, of just like, "Oh, this person assaulted me, but they actually kind of like me, so it's okay." Now I'm gonna date them. Like that's yeah, I mean that's still. Right something that's going on and yeah i thought it was interesting that a man dressed as a woman could sort of be susceptible to that same kind of brainwashing of like oh this person touched me in a way that i was not comfortable with but then you know we're gonna go on a date and if he's nice to me it doesn't matter anymore that he did that because now i like him (laughs) yeah and he proposed to me so it's fine yeah apparently that scene where he says that he is engaged got like some of the biggest laughs that people have ever heard in movie theaters. <laughs> Great. Um, it, it, was, it was funny seeing them on the date and dancing and that then he was having a good time. Like, I, yeah. I found that scene amusing. Um, what what did Jen think of it? The movie? Yeah. She really liked it, you know, and, and really did think that it was subversive and, um, you know, especially those... The, the scenes where Sugar is, you know, basically seducing Junior. You know, we know as the audience that, like, Junior is kind of, like, putting it on. Like, firstly, like, it's, he's totally a made-up character. You know, a fake millionaire. It's totally Joe. Um, And, you know, Joe is, you know, like, making up that he, like, is, can't fall in love and is, like, impotent or whatever, like, to get Sugar to, like, come on to him but like looking at it like visually you know sugar is on top coming on to him like (laughs) like making all the moves and you know that's not something you see a lot in movies from the 1950s like mainstream movies from the 1950s so um that's a really good point actually i mean i didn't think of that scene as potentially empowering but the visual yeah. alone is something that's unique yeah well and like put setting aside that joe you know is totally like playing her he's playing her because she has said this is like what she wants as a millionaire and she's going into that sort of acting on like sort of knowing what she wants and acting on what she wants which I like appreciate that like she has said I'm I want to marry a millionaire here's a millionaire that's interested in me I am getting what I want and you know that's that seems kind of rare too yeah I Um, mean like we might not think it's like a great idea to just marry someone because they're a millionaire but the fact that she has agency and is empowered in that way is good yeah yeah well, wow, there are a lot of problems with it in context. Yeah, but. that actually makes me like that storyline better. I didn't really think about it that way. Yeah. Um, although in the end, she doesn't get what she wants because she was tricked. So. 
Yeah. And I guess that there's, like, the other, like, you can think you want something. And, like, in this case, like, she just wanted a millionaire because she wanted a millionaire. What she really deserves is someone who, like, likes her, you know, and respects her and, like, cares about her, whatever. And, like, you, I guess you could argue that Joe is that. He likes her and respects her. And, like, there was no, like, he tried to get to her the only way that he could while he was also running from the mob or whatever. I guess you could argue that, like, she got not what she wanted, but what she needed. Hopefully, Joe has learned the error of his ways and isn't going to continue to be an asshole. Sex phone player. <laughs> what happens after the end of this movie? Yeah, because it's kind of, like, it ends on such a zinger that's, like, also kind of subversive. Osgood is, like, driving the boat, and Daphne is trying to, it's, like, all these reasons why they can't get married. And, you know, they're all kind of, like, superficial, and finally he's like, I'm a man. And Osgood just shrugs, and it's like, nobody's perfect. <laughs> Which, like, is played for laughs, obviously, but, like, what's the, what line comes after that? Like, yeah. <laughs> the conversation happens. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. And I read that that's, like, a really famous last line, and they, the writers were not even happy with it in the end. Like, they didn't, they just had it as, like, a placeholder, and then audiences liked it, so they kept it. (laughs) Once again, like, projecting too much onto this, but it seems like it's a nod to, like, the fact that in the real world, there are men (laughs) who like men, and, like... Maybe this is a millionaire who, like, actually does like men. And he's been married many times, but... Yeah, that's uh, what I thought, too. Like, after I thought more about that ending, I was like, well, maybe he actually liked her because she was mannish. And he likes men. (laughs) So it's... (laughs) Maybe there's a little gay revolution in the the end of this movie. Yeah. We'll pretend that it's there. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I did kind of want to join that all-female band. I thought that looked really fun. Yeah, I know. Although, like, this is definitely one of those movies where, like, thinking about time in this movie, I was like, do any of them actually ever sleep or take a shower? (laughs) Because I was tired just, like, watching them run around all night. Yeah, they did seem to just be going all the time. I mean, that's one of the things I also thought was good about this movie. The pacing was really fast. Like, there were, there was always something happening, and mm-hmm. it moved along quickly, mm-hmm. which was good. I thought the scene where they, like, basically there's a party in uh, Daphne's bunk was hilarious. Yeah. But, like, all the girls just, like, <laughs> pile into her bunk, and it's like, party in 42B, party in 42 <laughs> I know but also it was they kept talking about how cold it was on the train and then all of the women are for some reason like in their underwear like the whole time yeah i'm like where are your sweaters and your like long underwear i yeah i was cold having been on some overnight trains like i was cold looking at them (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean that's part of the male gaze stuff like just the way the women are attired and costumed in this was very much like, how close can we get them to be naked? And a lot of the shots were just, like, zooming in on women's butts and women's chests and stuff like that. And their legs. Yeah. Like, the first scene where you see Sugar, and then she's, like, running on the platform, and they're just staring at her butt, and then there's, like, a big thing of steam hits her. (laughs) I was like, okay, guys, we get it. Yeah. That uh, that metaphor is a little (laughs) heavy-handed. 
We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. Paul, I, I actually did not premeditate this, but do you think you're ready to talk about social justice? Obviously, knowing that this question was going to come up, I was trying to think about this a little bit ahead of time. I mean, we've obviously talked a lot about, like, the gender stuff in this movie and we didn't we haven't talked about like the organized crime part of this movie the fact that these guys are like on the run because they witnessed a a murder a massacre you don't have to protect themselves and like they're like we can't call the police we have to like go into hiding so there's this like element of like you know crime in society and like who actually like runs the show and that i think that is as much as i saw of um social justice in this movie did you what did you see it wasn't um super overt but i mean one of the lines running through it is that the cops know these gangsters and they mm-hmm. know they're doing bad stuff, but it's like they basically just have to be able to prove it. <laughs> yeah. Which is, I think, one of the frustrating things about organized crime is like you can be very aware that it's going on, but if you don't have something that'll hold up in court, you can't actually do anything about it. And so I yeah. think that was a theme. This was set in the 20s, so late 20s. And in, earlier on in the movie, they talked about how poor they were. Like they just, yeah. they were like, we need a job. Like we lost our coats. It's cold. We don't have anything to eat. There were some undercurrents of poverty and lawlessness, but I don't think there was any kind of central theme of like, Mm-mm. like fight for the little guy. I mean, I definitely didn't get that. Um, yeah, they were definitely like the, just the two of them together. Yeah, I mean, at um, least they had each other. <laughs> that was that was the one good thing. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. Well, what did you think about Bechdel then? It, among the band, there are scenes where... Like, they're talking about music and the work that they're doing and, you know, and that, like, alcohol's not allowed and, you know, that Daphne and Josephine have to put more, like, verve or whatever into their music because it's uh, just a little boring for their jazz orchestra. But there's not a ton of conversation between the women because they're all, like, secondary or tertiary characters. Yeah, that's what I... I agree. The only other woman who has a name who is actually a woman is the head of the band and she does talk to sugar and say i'm gonna kick you out if you're drinking and stuff so they talk about something but i overall do do not think it passes because yeah not even on a technicality the only really developed female character is sugar and she's like completely objectified the whole time and yeah i guess that sort of like highlights maybe like gender in this film that it's a movie it is a movie about men who are wearing women's clothing but like they sort of get close to the experience of women but can't like like ever really like experience that because they understand themselves as as men who are wearing women's clothing for their own safety (laughs) not because they like want to be yeah uh, wearing women's clothing because that is like an expression of their gender identity. Yeah, I mean, like, even the bellhop was hitting on them. I know. <laughs> Who looked like he was about 13. 12, yeah. <laughs> Barely old enough to be working. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it was pretty, pretty bad. I mean, they played it up a lot in the movie, which... I mean, they played it for laughs, but I was also like, yes, this is a good point, 1959 America. Like, maybe we <laughs> know, should talk I about know. this. I've seen Mad Men. Like, this is... <laughs> yeah. 
This is a good point, 1959. <laughs> Let's look into this a little bit. <laughs> May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow the Screen Sirens on Twitter, at the Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all... Tomorrow is another day.